Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 30. After Hours with Justin Brierley. Hello, and welcome to Pints with Jack. Today, I'm speaking with Justin Brierley from the Unbelievable Podcast. If you've been listening to Pints of Jack since the very beginning, you'll have heard me mention Justin and his podcast quite a few times. Uh, probably most recently, I think it was episode 17, uh, it was of this season, I had just finished reading Justin's book, and I was commenting that it was jam-packed with C.S. Lewis quotations. Uh, it was very clear that Jack had played a formative part in Justin's faith formation. And there were actually even at several points where I thought it even imitated mere Christianity somewhat, um, with its use of uh, well-placed, vivid analogies to demonstrate the point that was being argued. Anyway, Justin and I subsequently connected on Twitter, and I invited him to come on the show to talk about his faith, uh, his podcast, and his book. So, who exactly is Justin Brierley? After graduating from Balliol College at Oxford University, Justin went to work for Premier Christian Radio. He spent several years serving as editor for their magazine, Premier Christianity, but he is probably best known for his radio work. Every Saturday, Justin presents their flagship apologetics and theology debate program, Unbelievable, which brings Christians and non-Christians together for dialogue on a wide range of topics. Not only is Unbelievable an extremely popular podcast, it has also given rise to various evangelism and apologetics conferences, both in England and over here in the United States. He's married to his wife, Lucy, who is a minister of a church in Surrey, and together they have four children. And somehow among all of that, a couple of years ago, Justin found the time to write a book. It's called Unbelievable, Why After 10 Years of Talking to Atheists, I'm Still a Christian. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure to join you. Well, it's not often that I have someone on Pints with Jack with an accent quite as nice as my own. Uh, you're, you're actually only the second Englishman I've had on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I, I feel honoured somehow. I, I mean, obviously, uh, I was about to say, obviously, you're talking about an Englishman, but of course, you're actually talking about an Irishman most of the time, I suppose. So uh, that doesn't quite count, does it? <laughs> exactly. And, and it's a bit sad. I have to keep on correcting people. It's like, no, Lewis wasn't English. So close. So close. Not quite. Uh, but on behalf of the internet, I just wanted to thank you for doing your podcast. I've personally listened to Unbelievable for many years. And I think it's one of the few places on the internet where Christians and non-Christians actually get a chance to really dialogue with each other. And I think it's due in no small part to your often praised and quite rightly so uh, impartial moderation of the guests. Oh, that's very kind indeed. Um, I mean, in a way, that that feels all the more important as we've developed this very mixed audience on the podcast of both non-Christians and Christians. So uh, I'm always aware of who's listening and I'm asking myself, am I adequately serving both sides of that, that listenership? So I'm, I'm very glad that it does come across that way. Here on Pints with Jack, we always have a drink of the week and a quote of the week. The drink of the week is usually a scotch or a beer, but since it's rather early in the morning here in California at the moment, uh, today I've just brewed myself an extremely strong pot of Yorkshire gold tea. Very nice, very nice. And regarding the quote of the week, since today we're talking about apologetics, I thought this quotation would be appropriate from Lewis's God in the Dock. He writes, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So with that, cheers.
Cheers. Oh, man, I needed that. Mm. <laughs> I've now lived in the States for over 10 years, and my love for tea has not diminished one iota. Can you get decent tea out in the States, though? That's my question, David. You can, actually. When I first moved here, it was a little difficult. Uh, but now pretty much every major supermarket carries you know, some good stuff, some PG tips, some Yorkshire gold, a little bit of twinings if necessary. Very good, very good. I'm, I'm partial to Earl Grey myself. My wife converted me to Earl Grey while we were at university. So, so I tend to go for that if it's available. Though I'm, I'm a bit of a heretic because I do add milk. So oh. it depends on your, on your preference. Justin, you're letting me down. Squeeze of lemon. <laughs> that's all it should need. <laughs> uh, but could you please begin by telling us a little bit about your faith journey and the part that C.S. Lewis had to play there? Sure. Um, well, I mean, my, my faith journey really began uh, growing up in a Christian family. So in many ways, uh, I'm, I'm a classic case of uh, a child who was raised in a loving Christian family. And that was really where my faith began. But li- like most people who have had that experience, you have to own it for yourself at some point. And so um, I, I was probably in my mid-teens, really, when things came alive for me myself. And that was through the the work of a, a youth pastor and um, sort of experiences uh, in that youth group that I attended, which for me um, brought my faith alive in various ways. So so that was sort of me in, into my sort of mid to late teens. I had become a Christian. Um, but I'd say that my, my journey had only really just begun at that point, because having had an experience, I would say, of of the spirit of Jesus Christ, there was um, a lot of objections that I ran into immediately just in terms of my immediate school friends as a sixth former, you know, um, and then uh, a little later on at university as well. So Oxford University has a thriving Christian student community, but also obviously is home to a lot of sceptical students and uh, professors. And so to some extent, I started to engage probably some of the the big questions and objections to Christian faith uh, once I was at university. Um, And it was really, I suppose, in my mostly I think in my gap year before university and at university that I really started to dig deep into C.S. Lewis specifically. So I'd I'd been raised listening, obviously my parents read me the Narnia stories growing up, had read them myself uh, later on, had actually had the opportunity funnily enough as a um, at about the age of 12 to play the um, the role of Douglas Gresham in uh, a, a local repertory performance <laughs> of Shadowlands at our local theatre. Um, so I, in that sense, I was I, I, I knew something of C.S. Lewis, um, but really I discovered mere Christianity and miracles and books like that, his uh, apologetic and theological sort of stuff uh, during my gap year and, and into university. And uh, and that really yeah had quite a profound impact on me um, because I really started to engage with a word I hadn't re- even really conceived of at that point, apologetics and this kind of rational defence of the Christian faith. Um, and it was only then really after university that I started to put that into action myself in quite a specific way through starting the unbelievable radio show and podcast. And um, and that opened up to me an even wider world, really, of, of Lewis apologetics and scholarship and gave me gave me all kinds of opportunities to engage with some wonderful Lewis scholars like Alistair McGrath and um, people like Michael Ward and others. So so in a way, uh, I, I've been blessed by having had my first interest really as a young man and then being able to indulge it um, in all kinds of different ways through through what I do with the show. And you actually got to eventually interview Douglas Gresham. That's right, isn't it? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So um, that, that was fun because it was around the time that 
one of the Narnia films was coming out, um, you know, the, the, the first set of Narnia films um, through Walden Media, and uh, that he was in the UK doing some interviews uh, about, uh, you know, because he was connected with the films at that time. And so I, I was selected for whatever reason to, to do the interview for Premier Christian Radio. And so, yes, we were able to connect over the fact that I had actually played him in a in a play, which was a, a kind of a weird thing <laughs> to, to be talking to the person you you effectively played in this drama. Um, but but yeah, he was a lovely guy and uh, and I enjoyed the interview. Well, many of our listeners are going to be familiar with your radio show and podcast. Unbelievable. Uh, but how did that come about? Um, really, it came about because I'd been working for a few years by the, that point at Premier Christian Radio, which, um, unlike the US, uh, as you'll probably be aware, the, the UK really has very few specifically Christian media outlets. And so Premier Christian Radio was the first specifically Christian radio station to be founded in the UK back in 1995. I, I joined the station in 2002 and having cut my teeth in broadcasting and radio journalism, I began to think it would be great if there was a space in our schedule to, to talk to non-Christians and model what um, these conversations could look like. Because at the end of the day, most of the people listening to this who are Christians are actually out there in the secular world, engaging with non-Christian friends, neighbours and relatives. And um, I think they need more more of a, an idea of how to have good conversations. And so that was where the show began, simply sitting down on a, a Saturday afternoon to moderate a discussion between a Christian and a non-Christian. That began as a live thing, uh, and we would take calls from listeners as well, depending on the subject we were doing. Uh, we then moved it into a more of a pre-recorded format, so we'll record during the week and it gets broadcast on a Saturday. Um, and that enabled us to focus down a bit more on the debates in hand. Um, and uh, and once we started actually podcasting the show as well, that's when, as I say, this uh, non-Christian audience started tuning in as well via the podcast. So we now have listeners from all over the world, um, both Christian and non-Christian, who follow the show via podcast. And over the years, we've, we've then added various things to it, um, a regular conference in the UK, now starting to do conferences in the USA as well, the book. And uh, we've also uh, just got videos and all, all those sorts of things popping out as well, left, right and centre. So it's been exciting. But at the core of it has always been this idea of bringing Christians and non-Christians together for dialogue and debate, because I think that's one of the best ways to get at the truth. And um, and I really prefer hearing a conversation than just being told what to believe or, or the way to engage a sceptic or a Christian or whatever. I think it's much more interesting to hear that happening in real time. And, and that's what the show's always um, strive to do. Yeah, I think particularly when we only stay in our own bubble and we don't ever actually meet anybody from the other side, it's much easier to demonize them. Whereas when you have two people disagreeing, but being polite and respectful to each other, each side is humanized. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think there's a huge danger, especially in the polarized sort of times we live in, especially on social media, to basically just see the other person as as either a project or the enemy at worst. And actually sitting down and talking with people, I find, makes a huge difference to the way you then approach the conversation. So I, I, I think there's a huge amount of value in doing that. And the good thing is that I see it happening more and more. You know, what I began on the show several years ago now uh, was fairly unique and rare. Nowadays, though, I see a lot more just happening naturally, or organically, people on YouTube hosting, you know, discussions between themselves and someone of another point of view because it's so easy to do these days with 
with modern technology. So, so I, I, I like the fact that that's happening more, and and I, I, I think it's important that it impacts the, the cultural sort of polarization that currently happens a lot at the moment. Uh, it would be nice to see more of it there as well. Mm. Uh, who have been some of your most memorable guests? Um, yeah, it's <laughs> it depends on what you mean by memorable. I mean. So there, there are some who are infamous because because of their the way they've gone in for the discussion or debate or whatever. Um, so there was there was one episode I remember where it was a quite a. I mean, it was always bound to be, I suppose, um, a, a fairly fraught discussion anyway, because it was quite a controversial thing under discussion. But one of my guests was proposing that Muhammad, the founder of Islam, was himself a. Uh, we knew very little about him and that the vast majority of what we do know from the records and Quran and so on is fictionalized, essentially. So it's a, it was a kind of a, a Christian making this case against a, a Muslim. And that quickly descended into just a, just a slagging match, really, between the two of them. Um, it got very heated. I actually had to pause the recording and tell them both to calm down or else we just couldn't continue. Um <laughs> And I had a lot of people get in touch with me after that one to say they found that one really difficult to listen to because it, it did basically, I mean, each was almost as bad as the other, really. But it did turn into essentially a, a lot of insults. And and, and uh, yeah, so th- there are some that are not so good in that sense. They don't they don't tend to um, do what the show's supposed to do, which is which is have this fruitful kind of encounter. But they are memorable. So yeah, generating heat, if not light. Yes. Uh, and that was one of my other question. How do you remain so calm during some of these debates? Because uh, I, for one, when I'm listening to the podcast, I'm usually in my car, and I usually spend a lot of my time shouting at the car stereo. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I kind of, I sort of have to just put on my neutral moderator's hat as far as I can. Inevitably, sometimes it will slip off and I will you know, have my say on something or, or put a point of view across. But I'm I'm trying as far as possible to let the guests do the speaking and the arguing. And so, I mean, I might try, you know, I have the ability to point things in a certain direction. So if I feel like a, a point hasn't really been addressed, I can bring it up as a something for consideration between my two guests. Um, but But most of the time, I just have to accept that what will happen will happen there in the studio and it'll very much depend on who the two guests are and the points of view they bring. And, you know, people, people turn up to hear those two people. They don't turn up to hear me giving my opinions. Um, I mean, I do often end up giving my opinions. You might hear me talk about my perspective on something once we get into the feedback section of a show near the end of a program or whatever, but by and large, I, I just try and keep my own opinions out of it and just, and just let the people I've invited on have their say. You're a better man than I am. <laughs> but let's talk about your book, because a couple of years ago you wrote Unbelievable, why after 10 years of talking to atheists, I'm still a Christian. What motivated you to take off that moderator hat of yours, so to speak, and offer your own defense for the Christian faith? Well, partly it was just because I'd been asked that question quite often by both skeptics and Christians, why after all these years of hosting these debates and hearing all these objections against Christianity, why why are you still a Christian? In fact, around the 10-year anniversary of the show, I did a sort of ask me anything type of show where listeners sent in their questions. And one of the most common ones was something along these lines. Have you changed your mind about anything? Uh, has anyone ever convinced you, you know, and so on? 
And so it felt like maybe there was a, a, an interest in having a book where I laid my own cards on the table to some extent. And I think it was partly because um, after doing the show for 10 years, I felt like I'd sorted through enough of my own thinking on enough issues to feel like I had something to say about why I think there is a case for Christianity and and to, to kind of pull out what I think are maybe, for me at least, the most essential building blocks of making an intellectual case for Christianity, uh, the things that I'd I'd found helpful myself from all these years of doing the show. And I thought it might be helpful for other people. And so that was really where the book got going. Um, I felt, you know, it is, you know, in the genre of an apologetics book, rather like C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity or something like that. But I felt it had a bit of a unique spin because I had the privilege of hosting so many of these conversations. Um, there's lots of stories to tell alongside making the intellectual case for Christianity. And so I thought that at least would add an extra element of interest to such a book. And um and yeah, I'm pleased to say that a lot of people seem to have found it helpful and reasonably easy to get stuck into and enough there in terms of the additional kind of anecdotes and things uh, to, to keep the interest going as well. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely greases the wheels. <laughs> so what I'd like to do next is to take a little tour of your book so that listeners can get a sense of the sort of material that you cover there. And since this is Pints with Jack, I'd like to dwell a little bit on the areas where you draw on material from C.S. Lewis. Because mm. as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, uh, when I read your book, I was struck by the sheer number of C.S. Lewis quotations. Uh, I checked my Kindle version last night and I found his name mentioned over 30 times. Wow. I, I didn't even know that. <laughs> so you've, you know more about it than I do. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, though. That doesn't surprise me. My co-host, Matt, whenever he is invited to speak anywhere, uh, one of his friends will usually tell him, OK, Matt, you're allowed Two C.S. Lewis quotations. No more. <laughs> I find that um, another person who, who I know um, also is a very keen on quoting C.S. Lewis is, is N.T. Wright. And I do another podcast with him now, the Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Mm -hmm. There was one session where we were doing several recordings in a row. And I felt like he must have used C.S. Lewis two or three times in every episode. <laughs> so, and I, was, I was practically about to turn around and say, look, you should probably start quoting someone else at this point, Tom, or else people will think you've only, you only read one person. But um, he is just, the problem is he's so quotable. And that's, that's partly the reason I think why, why he ends up getting into a lot of these sorts of books and podcasts and things, because uh, he does manage to encapsulate ideas so very clearly. And as you say, in a way that, that kind of brings it across uh, in a way that kind of lights up the mind. So uh, I think that's a lot of the reason why he has been so popular over the years anyway. Here in San Diego, we have a, a book club and we're currently going through G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. And we met uh, this past Saturday and somebody saw that I was about to speak and say, David, what were you going to say? I said, well, I'm going to say what I say every single time. It's sort of how C.S. Lewis says in and then <laughs> I'll then just paraphrase something that he's written. <laughs> no, I, I, I do promise people I do read other books. I just I just end up quoting Jack way more often. Uh you spend the first few chapters of your book arguing for theism, simply for the existence of God. And you quote Lewis from God in the Dock, who says that basically everyone that he knew who as an adult embraced Christianity, um, it was influenced in part by some argument for theism. And in your book, you argue for theism by saying that God is the best explanation for human existence, human value, and human purpose. So I'd like to look at each of those in turn. So existence, you say that God is the best explanation for human existence. 
why is that? Why hasn't science given us all the explanation we need? Why do you feel the need to invoke God? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I, I think that the reason I invoke God is because science itself is in need of explanation, if you like. Um, and so insofar as science gives us explanations for why humans are here, whether through evolution or the physical processes of the universe, um, it itself is not an adequate ultimate answer to to the question of, of why we're here, because it only serves, in my experience, to throw up further questions, um, very deep questions very often. Um, and sometimes some of the atheist scientists I meet are happy to kind of simply settle on brute facts themselves, what I would call articles of faith, like, well, the universe is here and that's just the way it is. Um, or, yeah, we we just got really lucky in the cosmic you know, lottery of life or whatever it is. But I'm, I'm not content with those answers because I, 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 for me, whenever I look at the science behind why we're here, it seems to point where beyond, it keeps pointing beyond itself to another explanation, a more ultimate explanation. So I, I, I go through some of the you know things that will be very familiar to many people who are familiar at any level with Christian apologetics, things like the um, the fact of where did the universe come from in the first place? You know, the fact that both science and philosophy seem to point towards a beginning. And there is this question of, well, what, where, where did this beginning come from? You know, be, things that come into existence appear to need an explanation in the normal course of things. And why should we stop at that with the universe itself? But equally, once we have a beginning, once things are set in motion, there's this extraordinary phenomenon of fine tuning, again, which uh, is fascinating. We've done a lot of episodes of my show debating that. Um, but I'm, I find myself convinced that actually it, that, again, um, it appears to point towards something bigger um, to a designer, that there is some, some principle at work in the universe which enabled us to be here, that we're not here by blind chance, that everything seems to speak against the idea that it could have been pure chance that we're here by. Um, there seems to be some extraordinary cohesive element that allowed human beings to be here. And for me, theism, God, is a good explanation. It's a much better explanation than I found in, in a naturalistic way. And most of the what I'm doing in those early chapters especially is saying, let's say you've got two options in front of you to explain things okay naturalism is one of them that you know all that exists is the material world um physical processes and so on or or the christian worldview that there is a god behind this cosmos behind everything that there is a divine mind who intended for us to be here and in all of these three areas existence um value and purpose i find that the christian explanation has more explanatory value if you like uh, than the naturalistic one, which I find has is littered with with assumptions and gaps in my experience. Um, even just the fact we can do science at all, that we can discover these things, I think is most people don't stop and think just how extraordinary that is. And why should it be that we live in a universe that is so fertile uh, and so that, that has this ability to be explored by mathematical principles? Uh, that there's nothing it's 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 something we're so used to we hardly even think about it mm. but it, it's crying out for an explanation because it didn't have to be this way there, there's no reason why our human brains and the and the abstract world of mathematics should map so brilliantly onto the cosmos that we happen to find ourselves in it's an extraordinary fluke if there's no god that just completely goes against any kind of fluke you could imagine or there's actually something there that's binding it all together. So for me, there's there's a multiplicity of factors that, that bring the science and the philosophy and the faith together to explain human existence. 
so yeah so that's that's one chapter that i that i tried to bring that all together in i remember quite a while ago you put together a, a video where you used a dice to try and prove the existence of god i'll make sure to include it in the show notes because i think that one demonstrated rather nicely some of the mathematical odds that are at play when we talk about the fine-tuning of the universe yeah and and that show that that particular video generated a, a great deal of feedback as well and response videos from atheists and we did some of that on the show afterwards you know because i'm always open to, to having the conversation but i think the principle at the heart of it remains true which is simply that yeah you know we if if someone rolled, you know, in this case, I use something like 70 rolls of the number six in a row, we would assume the dice is loaded, there's something funny going on. And yet, with odds way, way, way more improbable than that, the human humans being here, people just think, oh, well, it was just chance. And and that, why would you think one thing in one case and, and not in the other? So I, I was just trying to use something that hopefully people understood from everyday life to say, you should you should consider the idea that there's actually someone's loaded the dice here that 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 things aren't just you know a result of chance so yeah but it was fun it's it's had a, I think it's had over one and a half million views on youtube so it seems to have struck a nerve with with quite a few people <laughs> uh, next up you say that god is the best explanation for human value why is that the case for me this is the one which goes from looking outside ourselves at the universe to looking within ourselves at why it is that we seem to want there to be this intrinsic human dignity and value in humans you know why do we create things like the universal declaration of human rights why 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 do we believe that some things are really right and some things are really wrong and of course this was this is a form of the argument that converted lewis himself to theism the moral argument you know as, as i'm sure you're well aware the this I, he said you know um as an atheist i was angry at the way the world seems so unjust and everything else but where had i got this idea of the universe being just or unjust how one does not judge a line um straight and uh, crooked unless there is a straight line to judge it against and the point being where do we get this idea of human value dignity worth where do we get these ideas of right and wrong that there are right ways to live and wrong ways to live and treat each other unless there is some standard by which we're judging it I find no way of reconciling that idea on a naturalistic framework if if we are ultimately just matter in motion, physical laws playing out in a kind of clockwork fashion. There is no ultimate right or wrong. There is no ultimate value um, or intrinsic worth in anything. You know, we are just one more piece of the biological tree of life. And yet the way in which we live life and all the things that we hold dear seem to go against that. We We constantly seem to regard humans as special in some way uh we you know in western cultures at least there's this very deep principle of the sanctity of human life and the value of human dignity and again i find that there's a ready explanation for that sense um that's deep inside us on the christian worldview in which we're created in the image of god and that gives us all infinite worth and value but i find no explanation really for it on a purely naturalistic framework where you might be able to come up with some kind of evolutionary explanation for why certain moral systems and values arose, but it gives simply describing that in no way makes that normative. That doesn't mean that should be the way we act. It simply is describing the way things happen to have emerged in a particular culture or society. It doesn't get to the the, the real heart of the issue, which is why do we believe we should act this way, that there is a way in which life should be lived and ways in which it shouldn't be lived. 
Um, and for me, I've never heard a satisfactory explanation on the naturalistic framework, but I find that Christianity provides it right there from chapter one of the Bible, basically. I really liked your quotation from Leah Labresco. Uh, she says that morality is something that we discover like archaeologists, not something that we build like architects. And she said Christianity offers us an explanation as to why that appears to be the case. And, and Leah's story, again, um, mirrors in so many ways Lewis's own conversion because she was this, you know, pathos atheist blogger who who went on to obviously become converted and is now a Catholic. And I did a show with Leah um, not that long after she had converted to Christianity with, uh, I think it was Hemant Mehta, the, who goes by the label of the friendly atheist online. He's not always terribly friendly, I must say, but <laughs> he, he um, anyway, they had an interesting conversation, but it was, a, I mean, to be honest, they, they, there was a lot of talking past each other, at least on Hemant's side, because he just couldn't conceive of this idea that someone could basically become a Christian after being an atheist was <laughs> he just was found that utterly incomprehensible to start with. And secondly, um, becoming a Catholic, even worse, as far as he was concerned. And then, um, but, but the actual argument that, that Leah put forth, which was this idea that, you know, she, she, she's a mathematician by background. And she said, I, I can see that there's this sort of abstract realm of mathematics that exists independently of me okay but when I came to realize there was this moral realm as well that didn't just in exist independently of me in a kind of inert abstract way but had these moral claims on my life that was almost alive in that way in terms of exerting things that she said was the big difference I had to respond to this this was and I cannot and she just couldn't reconcile this with her naturalistic sort of inclinations at that point but Hammond, he just he just couldn't compute it it just so so it's one of those things where it's frustrating but he just could not engage with that argument at all and I don't know maybe it's one of those things where you know those who have ears to hear or whatever it is because for for Leah it took her across the line to, to Christianity for, for someone like Hammond, he just doesn't seem to see it at all so yeah there you go well, I think he needs to go back to season one of Pints with Jack uh, when we were going through Mere Christianity and in book one where <laughs> Lewis lays out the moral argument step by step. Mm. I'll have to send him a link. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you then round off your arguments for God by saying that God is the best explanation for human purpose. Why do you need God in order to have purpose? And I know what some people are going to be thinking. Does that mean that atheists lack purpose in their lives? Well, just as I would say the moral argument doesn't mean atheists lack morality, I wouldn't say this argument means that they lack purpose. But of course, the question is, how do you ground those concepts in a naturalistic framework? Um, and, and just as I'm not saying atheists are immoral people, I'm just saying if they want to claim that their morality actually has some real existence, <laughs> um, it's very hard to do that without without something like a God to ground the, these moral absolutes and values. Likewise, with purpose, yes, we can all have our own small p purposes. You know, um, when I get up in the morning, you know, I have the purpose of going and making myself a cup of tea or whatever it might be. Uh, we may have purposes for our life in general. You know, I, I'm going to live my life in such a way that it brings greater joy and happiness to the greatest number of people around me. That may be a very grand purpose. You might have a purpose, which is I'm going to live my life so that I can retire wealthy, happy and improve my golf handicap. <laughs> you know, there are lots of different purposes we could choose to follow in life. Again, the big question is, how do we choose between them? Is, is there any ultimate purpose to which 
we're supposed to, that, that kind of is meant to guide our life. Um, and is there any ultimate purpose to life, to the universe? Now, most of the atheists and, you know, naturalists I meet would say, well, no, there isn't. We can have these small p purposes, you know, my kind of subjective purpose for, for my life, what I've decided I'm going to make of my life. But no, there's no ultimate grand narrative. There's no big capital P purpose to the universe, to life or whatever. Um, but in my experience, again, and the, the way I kind of phrase this kind of an argument is I use what's often called uh, the argument from desire um, that Peter Kraft and Lewis and others have, have made famous, which is simply that it seems strange then that across all times, places and cultures, there has been this ultimate search for a transcendent meaning and purpose to life. If, in fact, there is no such purpose or ultimate meaning to be found. And Lewis, as you'll know, sort of, you know, puts it as he does so well with this idea that um, a duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Um, people feel hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. People have sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no earthly thing can satisfy, the most natural explanation is that I was made for another world. I'm probably slightly misquoting it there. But the the point being, if we find this this you know, across all times, places and cultures, this common search for the transcendent, for ultimate meaning, for something that goes beyond our three score years and 20, then could it be that there is actually something to meet that, that, that this isn't just a, an illusion foisted on us by some sort of evolutionary process? And I'm simply making the point here. And it's not so much of an argument as the as the first two chapters are there. It's more pointing towards an intuition an intuition that says, why do we ask this question? What are we here for? Does any of it make any sense ultimately? Is there any point to any of this if there isn't something bigger going on, if there isn't, if there isn't some ultimate purpose for which we were made? And, and for me, I think that's probably the point that m most people actually start at. They don't necessarily start with the, the scientific questions or necessarily so much the moral questions. They actually, the, the question people are most likely to ask at some point in their life, if they're not a Christian, is, is there a point to life? Because I think it's often at the point where we get to crisis moments or moments where we're faced with our own mortality very often, that that, that is, becomes a really important question. I think it's a question that people often ask themselves at a later stage in life, sometimes more than an earlier stage of life. This question of what was what was the point of it all in the end? Um, and and so for me, I think I think that is a really good lead in to to the, the question of whether God could be the explanation for that deep down sense that there must be more to life than this. There must be meaning. There must be purpose. And uh, and I think, again, Lewis has done so much great work on this himself in, in so many of his books as well. And you quote from Jennifer Fulwiler, someone else we've mentioned on our show, and I've actually been on hers, uh, her book, Something Other Than God, which is itself a line from Lewis when he says that the story of humanity is man searching for something other than God to make him happy. Yeah. Uh, and also in this chapter, you pull from the argument from desire, but also the argument for reason, because you talk about the section in Miracles where Lewis critiques materialism and says that the materialistic outlook actually derails reason itself. He says that, you know, if our minds are dependent on our brains, and our brains are just biochemistry and biochemistry is just basically atoms bouncing around. He says, I can't understand why the thoughts of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this was an argument, you know, the argument from reason that struck me very powerfully as a young man. I remember 
I remember the room I was in when I was reading Miracles and reading the, this argument for God, essentially. And it just struck me like, wow, that makes sense. I, I, I can see a clear argument for why the fact I rely on my faculties of reasoning for to think about whether things are true or false is really hard to justify on a purely naturalistic basis if if ultimately all that that boils down to is atoms colliding with other atoms there's no truth value in things simply banging up against each other there just is whatever they happen to produce and on a purely naturalistic view of reason all we can ultimately say if i'm sitting down with an atheist opposite me is well my brain fizzes in such a way that i come out with this belief in god and your brain fizzes in such a way that you come out with a belief that there is no god but there's no actual truth in it it's just what the chemistry happens to have cooked up in this particular occasion because there is no truth value to the physical stuff and so i found this this you know what's sometimes called the argument from reason that, that kind of emerges from that a very powerful argument um I only recently, in fact, sat down with an atheist who's quite a, um, a popular YouTube vlogger called Cosmic Skeptic to, to kind of talk about this a little bit, because uh, he's a very bright young atheist at Oxford University, um, does some really interesting videos responding to Christianity. Um, he's got quite a philosophical approach to things. And uh, we got into a discussion on his podcast. Uh, I don't very often, by the way, do the kind of face to face where I'm the one defending Christianity sort of things though I've been called on to do it a bit more since the book came out but this was one of those occasions and we ended up getting into a discussion on free will which I think ties into this very closely because Alex uh, the cosmic skeptic his view is uh, there is no free will you know he's very much uh, of the Sam Harris sort of school of thinking on that that ultimately everything is ultimately simply the universe working itself out in naturalistic ways None of us have any freedom in anything we do, ultimately, because it could never have been otherwise. We we were always bound to be like this. And the main thing I wanted to get sort of to quiz him on, and we had quite a long conversation on this, is but then you've got no ground on which to stand and claim that you're an atheist for any reasonable reason. Because if you were always going to be an atheist, that was just the way the universe was set up like clockwork. You were always going to come out an atheist that is not something you ever chose. You never chose to be an atheist. You never used any capacity of reasoning to sort between the different options and come out with the idea that atheism is the the best, most rational choice to make. I'm a Christian just because that's what the universe ended up creating. You're an atheist because that's what the universe ended up creating. If there's no free will, how can you even speak of a reason? And we we went back and forth. But I find it's a really important thing to, to put to the naturalist. Very often, the the trumpet that gets blown the, the loudest is, we're all about reason, we're all about evidence. But if, if you believe in a process which radically undercuts the whole concept of reason, then you're really, you're really doing something, you know, you're soaring off the, own, the branch that you're sitting on, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and I think so few naturalists and atheists I meet have ever even thought of that. It's never occurred to them. But I think it's a really radically important thought because... You've got to take it seriously. You've got to take the consequences of your own worldview seriously and the way they entirely undercut the very ground you think you're standing on. Yeah. (laughs) You then switch from arguing for the existence of God and specifically start talking about Jesus, uh, using him effectively as a means of sorting through the different religious options out there. If people have got on board with your first few chapters, okay, God exists. Has he spoken? 
and you point out that, well, if we answer the question of who is Jesus, that will help us thin the pack very quickly, since most religions have something to say on who Jesus is. Uh, and you go through some of the false conceptions that people have of Jesus, uh, the guru, the, the, the zealot, and you spend some time talking about mythicism and Richard Carrier and the idea of Jesus just being recycled pagan deities and the glaring lack of evidence for that. Uh, and then you present the trilemma. So in your own words, this isn't even original to Lewis, but he was certainly one who popularized it. What, is, what does the trilemma give us? Yeah, well, the and the trilemma. I'm sure there's hardly anyone listening who isn't aware of what that is, but uh, it's the the mad, bad, or god sort of um, trilemma. So, if Jesus did and said the things he didn't said, um, then we don't get left with the option of this was just a nice moral teacher. Um, either he was mad, as in uh, he 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 had some kind of personality disorder that made him think he was God, or he was evil in some way, trying to trick people into believing he was God or else he was who he said he was. He made these claims about being God. That's essentially the, the classic way that it's, it's been put. Of course, very often the conversations I've had have revolved around a, a fourth option. Maybe he wasn't a, a liar, lunatic or Lord. He was a legend. Maybe all of these sayings and things we know of Jesus are actually just later effectively inventions that grew up out of a community that's got some tangential relevance to this person whoever he was but we really don't know much about him in fact and what i simply try to do in my chapter sketching out a historical case for jesus is to say actually we have very good reasons to believe in the historical case for jesus who he was and the things he said and did so i'm trying to sort of cut that particular <laughs> fourth option out and say it still leaves us with what i think you know whether it was lewis or someone else before him this very clever way of showing that it's simply not enough to say Jesus was a good moral teacher. The things he did and said don't allow us that option. We have to take him more seriously than that. So I, I've, I still find it a very compelling way of introducing people because very often, even though for you and I who know Lewis quite well, it may seem like that, that argument's been around f forever. Um, actually, most people who are simply unfamiliar with Lewis or generally uh, any kind of evidence for Christianity, they'll they'll very often nonetheless still have some kind of passing respect for Jesus Christ as a good moral teacher, because that's probably the kind of milieu that they grew up in at some level. And so I think to simply present them with that trilemma is still a powerful apologetic in terms of um, saying, actually, that's not really an option. Actually, you've, you've, he, Jesus forces you to, to, to take a side on, on what he said. And, and I think that's still a good a good thing to challenge people with today. Mm. And after speaking about Jesus, you then devote the next chapter to the resurrection, because if, as St. Paul says, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And you defend the resurrection using the minimal facts approach. Um, I really love this. Could you explain how that works? Yeah, the minimal facts approach really was developed, I think, primarily by Mike Lacona and Gary Habermas to U.S. theologians and Bible scholars. And uh, essentially, it's it's a clever way of doing things because um, it says, look, I'm not I'm not going to try and convince you that the Bible is the authoritative uh, word of God, um, that it's somehow supernaturally been given to us. We, um, we're going to sort of come onto your ground, skeptics, and say, what, what are the things we can agree on just in an objective kind of way? Let's let's just look at the 
the the the gospels the new testament just as historical documents okay uh let's just put them you know lay them alongside other ancient documents of the same genre and variety at the time and let's simply ask what do the vast majority of people who know about that stuff say about these accounts okay and from that you can come up with um, a pretty convincing case that the vast majority of historians of this genre of literature of the gospels and other ancient writing um, there's quite a wide amount of agreement on some pretty significant things and when it comes to the stories of the resurrection there are depending on your list five or six different key things that the vast majority of them believing or non-believing by the way agree on um, i happen to use i think about four of them just for the sake of space really in my in my chapter maybe it's five um uh, essentially uh the first one is that it's it's a, simply given as a historical fact that jesus died by crucifixion in fact there you know according to people like nt right there are few other events in ancient history that can be more securely testified than that if we're simply taking the, the gospels as historical documents uh, and looking at what they look like alongside other equivalent historical documents that Jesus died by crucifixion is is simply a fact of history. Uh, and then I, then there are a number of other ones which, again, uh, have a very high degree of agreement between the various scholars. Uh, so, for instance, um, this would be things like the discovery of an empty tomb by a group of Jesus's women followers. And again, you can go into some of the reasons why scholars think that's really likely to have actually happened historically, partly because the testimony of women was worth so much little compared to a man in that time and place. It would be a very odd thing for people to invent as a way of shoring up this idea that that something had happened because why on earth would you put women as the first discoverers of the empty tomb in a culture where their testimony was worth less than a man? Today, it actually counts in its favour by the what the historians call the criterion of embarrassment. Um, you've got things like people reporting that they met the resurrected Christ. Again, that doesn't mean to say they did, but they reported that they did. Maybe, you know, we might say maybe there's some other explanation for why they had that experience. But even so, non-Christian scholars like Gerd Ludemann have said it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and other apostles had experiences that they believe were of the risen Christ. And then you've got the conversion of skeptics like St. Paul and James, the brother of Jesus and others. Again, which historically the vast majority of scholars are happy to say, yes, this happened historically. And five, you've got the explosive growth of the Christian church, again, which is well documented historically that this group claiming that their Messiah had been crucified and then resurrected suddenly exploded and started, you know, having this enormous impact across the Mediterranean. And so you've got these five facts. There could be all kinds of explanations for them. We're not saying this automatically equals a resurrection. But when you take them all and you line them up and you say, well, what is the best explanation for these things that are generally agreed upon by the vast majority of Christian and non-Christian scholars? And you kind of run them through a filter of possible naturalistic explanations. I find that you might be able to maybe squeeze a naturalistic explanation for the empty tomb. Maybe they went to the wrong place or something. But that doesn't make sense of the another aspect of uh, another one of these these minimal facts. Um, like the people reporting they experienced the resurrected Christ. And as you work through it, I just find that actually maybe the best explanation is the one that was given, that Jesus had risen from the dead. When you look at the totality, the cumulative sort of case from all of these historical facts, it seems to lend itself towards a supernatural explanation. 
Now, of course, that's an interesting one in itself, because I do meet historians who say, well, however good the case may look, you can't get a supernatural uh, result from a set of historical causes. That's that's kind of like breaking the rules of history or something. To which my, my answer is, maybe this is the one case where you can be- break the rules, because if a man made these kinds of claims about himself, fulfilled all kinds of prophecies from thousands of years before, and there's this extraordinary historical case and it happens to have produced the most world-changing thought and religion that has ever been known, maybe there is something supernatural at the heart of this um, that we need to take seriously. So so anyway, that's uh, that in a rather large nutshell is, is the, the, the sort of minimal facts way of approaching the, the resurrection. And also in response to those historians that would deny the resurrection because it's simply because it's supernatural. Well, if they've read the first few chapters of your book, they've read your proofs or at least your arguments in, in favor of theism. And if the very first line of the Bible, you know, God created the heavens and the earth, well, then raising a man from the grave is child's play in comparison. Yeah, exactly. And and I think... Um... It, it may be the case that, I mean, if if you don't believe in God, if you believe like God is just a non-starter as an explanation, then, of course, you're going to prefer anything to a resurrection hypothesis. You know, any naturalistic explanation, no matter how far fetched or stretched, is preferable. But if you've even got just a modicum of evidence that God might exist, then I think it strongly favours then the the explanation that the apostles gave that, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by God. And you wrote in your book, you know, if Jesus walked out of his grave, then we can sort out all of the other details later. <laughs> We've, we at least know what we are. We're Christians at this point. Yeah. And, and, and in that way, I, I've always subscribed to that mere Christianity sort of philosophy of Lewis's, which is, look, we can have really interesting and important conversations about certain areas of doctrine and Christian ethics and everything else. But if someone is saying, I'm not going to become a Christian because I don't think I can get on board with, say, Christian ethics around sexuality, or uh, I just don't like the idea of hell or something else. My my feeling is, well, hang on. You've kind of you're you're you're, cho- you're choosing to, to withhold because of an extraneous thing. Not they may they're important, but they're ultimately secondary if there's evidence that Jesus Christ died and rose again let's get to the bottom of that first because if that's true then we can work out the details all that other stuff and there might be some really important questions but but let's sort out the the central claim first of all mm. uh, just a couple of weeks ago i was giving a talk on lewis's the four loves and someone came up to me afterwards and asked me if i knew of any good miracles that they could investigate um modern day miracles i said why go modern day i pointed back to the resurrection and i went through the minimal facts approach and i said this seems to hold up to me (laughs) yeah it's always interesting to to investigate them but i'd agree with you i'd say if you're going to point to one miracle then go back and investigate the original one in christianity the most important one yeah uh now Probably the most powerful argument in favor of atheism is suffering and pain, and you deal with that in the next chapter. You draw from Lewis's The Problem of Pain, as well as more from mere Christianity in his understanding of suffering. And one point that I really like that you made in that chapter is there's just the sheer number of arguments for theism. There's, there's so many. There's cosmological, moral, ontological, but really the problem of pain and suffering is the major one for atheism. 
Uh, and you then go on in the next chapter to talk about a chance conversation you had with the uh, uh, the Pope of the New Atheism, Richard Dawkins. <laughs> and in that, he makes a pretty shocking admission and rather proves Lewis's point about the argument of morality. And as much as I would love to talk about it, we're running a little short on time. <laughs> and I actually think that should be used as bait to get listeners to buy your book, which, again, <laughs> is unbelievable after 10 years of talking with atheists, why I'm still a Christian. And you then close out your book by looking at some of the popular memes uh, against Christianity, things like, uh, well, atheism is simply an absence of a belief in God. Uh, I wouldn't believe in a God that would send people to hell. And there you draw from Lewis's The Great Divorce. Uh, and also the odd claims like religion is to blame for all the evil and conflict in the world. But the, the last thing I particularly wanted to talk about was the final chapter where you talk about choosing to live in the Christian story of reality. What does that really mean? Yeah, I, I think ultimately for me, what it means is that at, at some point um, you have to move from prodding and poking at the evidence for Christianity to actually stepping into that worldview. Because it's it's that thing that... Um, which 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 of the great church fathers was it who said, um, I believe in order to understand? Um, the, uh, that's Augustine. There you go. Um, and and there's a sense in which ultimately Christianity has to be stepped into and lived in order to be truly understood. And I, I liken it to uh, Michael Green, who's a wonderful. Well, he died actually just earlier this year, but um, wonderful apologist and evangelist who who told this story once of a skeptic uh, who had lots of questions about Christianity and with, with a friend drew up to the outside of a rather austere looking church with these tall opaque windows. And they they kind of were on the outside of faith at that point, asking hard questions. But it was once they were drawn to the entrance and walked across the threshold into the church. And from the inside, those opaque windows turned out to be stained glass and were letting all this beautiful coloured light stream into the sanctuary and lighting it up. And the point being that sometimes it's only once you step inside that you see the full picture of something. And for me, that's that's really important. If our apologetics is worth anything, it's simply to bring people to the point where they can take that step and actually start to live in the Christian story of reality. Because I think that's the point at which it makes a lot more sense. We, You'll never really get Christianity just from a set of abstract arguments, um, even reading a, a great book like Mere Christianity, it's only once you, if that brings you to the point of being able to say yes and take that step of faith that, that it'll actually start to, to, to make sense. And so for me, um, I just wanted to make sure that people understood apologetics was not the point of this. It was, it's all about ultimately bringing you into a relationship, uh, into something that's personal, not merely a set of arguments and moving counters around on a chessboard. So so that's really where I wanted to leave people is to say, take the plunge, step into this stream, step into that building, put these worldview goggles on, whatever metaphor you want to use. It's actually <laughs> about starting to live this and seeing if it holds up. Wonderful. So as we begin to wrap up, I'd love to hear what you've got in the pipeline. I know there's a conference coming up here in California and you also mentioned to me earlier that there might be more C.S. Lewis coming to Premier Christian Radio soon. Yes, well, I've got I've got three things actually I'd love to tell you about. Yes, firstly, 
We've got unbelievable live in LA, though, strictly speaking, it's Costa Mesa. So just a little bit <laughs> south of LA. But um, yeah, Friday the 11th and Saturday the 12th of October, um, I'm going to be bringing the unbelievable show on a Friday night to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Going to be joined by Professor John Lennox and um, a YouTube personality, Dave Rubin, uh, who runs the Rubin Report. And they're going to be having a conversation on is God dead? A kind of conversation on um, God, atheism, contemporary culture. Dave Rubin's kind of been facilitating conversations himself with some of the key players in the so-called intellectual dark web, people like Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro and others. So anyway, that should be a fascinating conversation between John Lennox and Dave Rubin on the Friday night. Then Saturday the 12th, we've got a conference really with apologists from the UK and USA coming. I'll be there, John Lennox, people like Jay Warner Wallace, Mary Jo Sharp and others um, from California who'll be uh, there for the whole day. We're going to have a fantastic time. And uh, you can book tickets and get yourself along there at unbelievable.live is the place to go. And then um, just before I tell you about the exciting C.S. Lewis podcast that's in the wings, we've also just launched the second season of something called The Big Conversation from Unbelievable. It's kind of a special series of video debates, high quality video debates with some of the biggest thinkers on both sides of the Christian and atheist divide. Uh, and so we started that last year with some some big names. Um, we've just started this new season and uh, the first episode went out with Alistair McGrath and Brett Weinstein debating religion, useful fiction or ultimate truth. That was from a live discussion we had shortly going to be putting out one between William Lane Craig and Sir Roger Penrose on God and the Universe. Uh, that, that'll be fascinating and more coming up. So if you want more on those ones, uh, we've got a special website for those as well called thebigconversation.show. And finally, yes, you did allude to another uh, podcast project in the offing. Um, so I, I'm part of a wider media organisation, Premier, and we've, as well as having the Unbelievable podcast and various other podcasts, including the, the Ask N.T. Write Anything one, uh, we're just in the, the early stages of developing our own C.S. Lewis podcast too, where we'll be sitting down on a regular basis with Alistair McGrath, who's probably one of the world's foremost Lewis uh, scholars and experts, in which we'll just get to pick his brain on a regular basis on all things Lewis related. Uh, so that'll be a, a big treat for anyone who's a fan of Pints with Jack. I'm sure uh, they'll they'll be interested in in catching that one when it comes out. We're um, we'll start recording towards the end of this year, but probably won't launch it till sort of um, the first few months of of next year. So, but look out for that. And uh, we're not quite sure what we're calling it yet either. But <laughs> any any suggestions are welcome. So yeah. You can't call it Pines with Jack. We've got that one cornered already. <laughs> but that, that's wonderful. I'll make sure our links to all of those things will be in the show notes. And just to conclude, uh, where should people go to find out more about you, the book, and the show? Well, uh, the show, I'm afraid it's a rather long web address. We're, we're going to be getting our own bespoke website soon. Um, but it's still at the moment, premierchristianradio.com forward slash unbelievable or simply google unbelievable justin briley uh, you'll find out more there there are links from the show page to the book and the conference and other things but that's a good place to get started or simply start downloading if you're a podcast listener the unbelievable podcast uh, and uh, you'll you'll find us wherever you get your podcast from wonderful well justin thank you again for coming on the show and if listeners would like to win a copy of justin's book i'd simply like you to share a link to this episode on twitter or instagram and tag us at pints with jack and join us again next week when Matt and I are going to be having a mailbag episode and we're going to be looking forward to season three when we're going to be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.